I'm Rabbi Matthew Ponak, and welcome to We're In This Shift Together, an optimistic yet candid collaboration of secular and spiritual discourse, harnessing insights old and new to build bridges towards an adaptive future. I am honored to be joined today by Natan Margalit, a rabbi and scholar with 30 years of experience in teaching, writing, organizing, and congregational leadership. He is the author of The Pearl and the Flame, A Journey into Jewish Wisdom and Ecological Thinking. Welcome, Natan. Thanks, Matthew. It's a great to be here. Absolutely. And I've had many insights and ways in which I have been connecting in my own journey to your book since reading it. And I wanted to start today just right at the top. And I know you have a lot of life stories which you interweave with your teachings in The Pearl and the Flame. And I I want to ask you about the title and throughout any of these questions about your book, by all means, weave in personal stories. I, I love to hear them. I know our listeners do, but I'm it's just this this I'd love in your own words. What what is the metaphor of the pearl and the flame? Yeah, the pearl and the flame is actually doesn't relate to a story per se, although I do have to say that my name, Margalit, can mean pearl. So that's that's nowhere in the book, but for those who know, that's uh, that's one connection. But it goes back to uh, a rabbinic story, a midrash that's kind of key to the to what I'm arguing in the book. And the midrash basically goes like this: There's one of the students of the rabbis. This is happening two thousand or so years ago, in the the time of the Roman times, the times of the ancient rabbis, about a century after Jesus. And he is sitting and studying. He's learning. He's studying the scriptures, the, the the Hebrew Bible. And there's fire. There's fire all around him. And the other students are freaked out, and they're scared because they think that he may be doing one of these mystical practices, coming into a, 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 a you know a, an altered state of consciousness, which is where this fire is coming from. And he's only a student. He shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. And so they call their teacher, Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Akiva comes and confronts him and says, uh, Ben Azai, his name was Ben Azai. He was no longer, he was not yet a rabbi, so they didn't call him Rabbi Ben Azai. They just called him Ben Azai. Says, are you doing the chariot mysticism, which is the most secret and uh, restricted kind of mysticism? They say, actually, that that you know, there are certain teachings you can teach to anybody, certain teachings you can teach to five, to three, to one. And the chariot mysticism, you can only teach to one person at a time, and that person has to know it already. So, the he said, are you doing the chariot mysticism? And he says, no. All I'm doing is I'm stringing together the words of the Torah and the words of the writings and the words of the prophets. I'm stringing them like pearls. And the words are as happy as when they were given on Mount Sinai. As we know, Mount Sinai, the words of the Torah were given and there was fire. So that's the that's the story that I get the idea, the pearl and the flame, because what Ben Azai is doing is a different way of thinking. And what he's doing is he's understanding and he's thinking by putting things together, by creating new patterns, by creating new juxtapositions. And that's very different than the way that we are mostly taught to think 
in our schools and our education and in 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 what we put forth as real analytical thinking in our western culture we've been sort of for the last 3 centuries or so trying to understand the world by breaking it apart but you know ever since the scientific revolution and people like Descartes and all of those folks who who really created modern science and modern technology they said let's look at the world as a machine and just like a machine we can take it down to its component parts and we can analyze it and predict and we can control and we can basically look at that world in that way and and they had amazing success they had great success in creating the wonders of the the modern world which i which i'm actually very happy about a lot of them but as we've started to see in the in in the last several decades there's also a downside to that that way of looking at the world that takes things up uh, that that takes things apart that reduces it one of the, the the technical term that we talk about in science is reductionism that reduces everything that has a, a lot of downsides and we can talk about what those downsides are but what benazai is doing is understanding by putting things together and that's a different way of so i want to get let you get uh, get a comment or question in sure just to say yeah i i like what you're saying about we do benefit from from the analytical perspective the breaking down perspective and i think that's that's really important to acknowledge while almost also saying we need another paradigm we need another perspective and approach it's almost like the whole modern analytical approach that's one of the pearls on the string and the next one we need to be wedding to that is this ecological thinking is the way of 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 bringing that together and and i think a lot about hegel's dialectic that there obviously was a time where people felt very drawn to breaking things down into component parts we're building this new world science you know we're we're trying to build a technical today and tomorrow and all of that and there was there was a lot of buy in for that and it made sense and we've for many of us that's kind of reached its natural conclusion at least in terms of the passion we feel towards it and how much faith we have in that process and so there's something else that's arising that's actually as it happens very ancient right yeah yeah exactly yeah and in fact you don't even have to go to 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 recent time i mean even in that midrash that story that i quote i actually I actually cut out half of the half of it because there's another part that's added on where another rabbi gets there and says like I was trying to string those pearls and I got freaked out I was scared by the flames and another rabbi comes up and says oh, yeah I know you know some people are drillers and some people are stringers and you're a you're a driller and I actually can do both so you know the whole story actually and it was too long to include in the book but the whole story is actually yeah we do need to actually have a balance you said that the hegelian yeah. dialectic and is it i i know you just said you didn't include it in the book but i remember reading the part about the driller in the book where is that is that the appendix it's something like that there's the comment shows up at some point at least about the driller versus the the stringer I'm, maybe it's in a footnote or i forget where i don't actually remember i hope I put, it's not my but, own rabbinic training coming in it, and i don't know it that may be that well but because i actually don't remember putting the driller into the book it may be that well, you took a class perhaps, with me or yes, something it's, it's but, somewhere because this um, is not the first time i've heard the driller metaphor but just yeah. to say and can you talk about the flames a little and and 
as much or you know you can relate it back to kind of ecological thinking if you want but i'm as someone who is a student and a teacher of mysticism very interested in the flames and the way in which they can be overwhelming if it's it's let's say if 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 ben as i had been doing these mystical practices explicitly and fire and that could be literal metaphoric right in the talmud and those writings but also what does that mean that stringing together pearls could be producing flames? Is that a positive? Is it scaring people? What What does that mean, I guess, for you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the flames are really important because that, as we saw that from that other rabbi, that, you know, he was scared by it because what Ben Azai was doing was kind of radical. I mean, it was, it was, it's, it's part and parcel of what the rabbis did, but there's an audaciousness to it because what he's doing is he's actually really claiming to be doing a new revelation and that's that's why you have the flame because when he puts you know you take a word here and we know that you know you know this like in terms of like this is how the rabbis work you'd have a word from genesis and you say like how do i understand that you don't look it up in a dictionary you say ah you know what there's a, there's a there's a, a verse in isaiah that uses that same word i'm going to like put those two together and then I'm going to like see what comes out, and and what happens is that you haven't changed one word of the of of the of the scriptures, but you've created a new meaning by putting something together that wasn't, you know, that nobody's thought to put together before. So yeah, and that's that's so there's a real radical thing of like it's what makes the Torah eternal on some level because like you can always be making new juxtapositions, but that's radical and scary um, for some. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and literally just taking two things and holding them close to each other and watching the spark or the electric electricity flow and something new right. can emerge and that that's it's kind of like alchemy in a sense. Right. It, it is, you know, and what that is actually a uh, uh an example of is one of the things that I talk about in the book, one of the sort of really important things which is we talk about in ecological language is emergence. And emergence is of course and it's a whole field way beyond ecology. But it's this idea that really is just a shorthand to say the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So, you know, in this case, you'd say, well, like, there's this verse, and I can look at this verse, and I can look at that verse. But if I put them together, then they become a new, a new animal, and all of a sudden they mean something that is more than what they meant on their own. But, you know, it's the same thing with, like, with, with trees, you know, as we've seen from all the various different literature that's come out in the last, you know, decade or so of you know, with the the hidden life of trees and all of the the research that's been done, that we know that now that that a tree is not the same as a as a forest. Like you know, it's like there is something that emerges. There is a balance. There's a dynamic uh, sort of um, life that is the life of the forest, which is way beyond the sum of any individual trees. And we know that for society and all over the place, emergence is is like alchemy because it creates something. It feels like something from nothing. Yeah, and and so in uh, the field of transpersonal psychology, they talk about a spiritual emergence versus a spiritual emergency. And uh -huh. it is true that when emergence happens, there can be a fearful element of it. It is possible to have, let's say, a person who's exploring consciousness and they're they're breaking into something new. Actually, that can be painful and overwhelming. It's one of the reasons why there were warnings about teaching mysticism all the way back then in the rabbinic era. And so I'm just, I'm trying to imagine people who are afraid of this 
and situations in which this can be scary for some. And I think in a way, emergence, newness, especially if you're working with sort of pre-existing materials, especially traditional religious materials, that that can be a scary prospect. I, I wanted to ask you, when I picked up your book, just reading right at the beginning, I was, you know, I've known you for a while, but I didn't know this part, how much time you spent in the Israeli outreach orthodox world of Asia Torah. These are places that I was as well in around 2004, spending time for the first time really in a in that in very deep 24-7 kind of intentional way exploring traditional Judaism, but in an environment where people really, really wanted to relay it to me as a non-orthodox Jew. And specifically around this issue of stringing pearls together, because it in a way combining elements from that world outside of Orthodox Judaism in the liberal Jewish, the non-Orthodox Jewish world, or in the scientific philosophical world, there's a way in which that's controversial on its own. That some people, and I, I think probably because of trauma or things like that, or just, you know, being raised without a knowledge of some of the gems of that traditional world might say, why would you use this at all? Why should we be taking pearls from a dead world or those kinds of things? And so, I'm curious about stringing pearls together in both of those directions. And maybe it's fiery or maybe it's controversial, but also just a little bit about why you think it's so valuable. Well, you know, the thing is that like one of the things that we're finding in the world is, is that uh, it's not only in Judaism, but uh, I mean, a lot of indigenous cultures are now actually, we're discovering the wisdom. We're and, and it really, it comes around to the same kind of ideas. Like a lot of indigenous cultures have a different way of thinking than we have in the modern world. And that thinking has, it, it puts relationships as primary. It looks for patterns. It looks for our, our connections to the whole and understands understands by looking at the whole so for you know in in um restorative justice for example which draws a lot on indigenous indigenous uh, sources says that like how do you you know you don't understand somebody does a crime and you don't just ask like okay did this person do it are they guilty you know how much time in prison but you look at where did this person come from where do they fit what are the, all of the different factors and how is taking this person out of the community, how is that going to affect not only that person, but the community, the family, all of those factors you put together and you say, okay, what can we have, where can we have the best outcome, rather than sort of like cutting it out and looking only at these specific details, which is more like what we do in, in, in you know, in sort of our Western uh, justice system. And it's a you know so that's just one example of the kind of thing that i think that like when you go back to the sources the early sources in judaism i think that you find more of that kind of thinking you find a, a what we might call a traditional mode of thinking an indigenous mode of thinking that actually preserves this much more natural way of thinking in fact it's like we are embedded in relationships and even though we've gained a lot by this particular technique of breaking things down, we also can gain a lot by seeing how everything fits together. And that is something that more traditional cultures really have, uh, we, you know, we've, we've lost that, but we can start to recover it. So Judaism is no exception. And can you take us back to when you first 
really encountered this other world within Judaism that, you know, maybe you knew a little bit about, but it wasn't until you really had some immersive experiences in Jerusalem, it sounds like. Was that, was that your first exposure to, I know you talk about a camp, uh, a camp experience and kind of going to a, a summer camp and having, I think what many people who went to Jewish summer camp, at least I always describe it as a utopic, utopian <laughs> experience this, there. And I'm curious specifically about when you first really started encountering orthodoxy and this sort of more ancient, I guess you could say, a preserved lifestyle. What, what, how did you feel well, encountering that world? You know, it was interesting because like in the book, I talk about really kind of almost two, two very different stages of that. Because the first, and I talk about this in the very beginning in the prelude to the book, was this encounter, as you mentioned, like at Asia Torah, which I spent very little time at. That was just, you know, but I was, uh, I was in college. I was, you know, probably 20 years old and just a tourist in Israel. And I got pulled in from the bus station and went to this lecture, uh, you know, at, in the, in the old city and, you know, these little narrow streets and went in there. And here was this rabbi who is, very charismatic and saying, you know, all of these things and teaching about like how you can find happiness and the evils of the modern world and all of these things. And on the one hand, I, you know, the, my tourist experience the last couple of weeks, I had been like, you know, going around and looking at things. I knew that wasn't what I was looking for. I was looking for something deeper. And so this definitely was something deeper, but on the, I also felt like I don't trust these guys. Like, here they are, and they're and they don't believe in evolution. They don't believe in modern science. They're where they're uh, in these you know costumes and black hats and all sorts of things, and you know. And so I was very very like mixed. I was attracted, but I was also very wary, and I was also where. And I ended up like basically tearing out of there after a day. And but when I tore out of there, I I kind of was left with this. Um, kind of a dilemma that took me months to like get over it, you know, or, or in some ways years to get over it, that like how do I put this together there's something that they have that I really want and I also can't take it and that was an example of what I in some ways that was the negative example of the seed that sort of got me to feel like I've, there's got to be a way of like not either or there's got to you know be a like, way yeah Latan, it sounds like putting sand in an oyster <laughs> <laughs> it is a seed, but it's rough and you can make a pearl from it, right? But it's not the kind of seed we like to think about with the beautiful flowers that are going to grow. It's the it's the grist for the mill, you know, it's the it's the roughness that spreads the pearls that bring, brings those forth. So yeah, so in some ways I uh, you know, it, it may have that was like a jump start of some kind and it got me to really take Judaism seriously. I'll say that. But I couldn't, I couldn't swallow that pearl, that was the, <laughs> the, or whatever, or that oyster. In no, case. I like that. Yeah, but, it's, uh, uh, too too big a pearl to swallow. But that was, you know, that was uh, really an example of what I felt like. Okay, I've got to get around this somehow because, like, I can't live with this either or. Either this like feeling of meaning and togetherness and and, and, and connection. But giving up all of modern science, giving up all liberal values, giving up, and I, I found that I couldn't do that. And so that started like a long, years-long kind of exploration where I did find myself, and then later on in the book, I talk about 
coming to learn at at, at Pardes. And uh, did you go to Pardes? I don't know if you. Uh, I I some of my best friends went to Pardes, if you know what <laughs> I'm saying. But I actually yeah. never. I don't think I've ever, ever even stepped foot in Pardes. But I I know so many people who have gone there and benefited and all of that. Yeah. But I've never personally learned at Pardes, which is so another this- another seminary in Jerusalem for people listening. Exactly, and it's a seminary that is 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 basically teaching Orthodox Judaism, but in a much more liberal way, and and you know that all genders were not you know not separated, and you called the teachers by their first names. It was very had a much a much more liberal ideology, and and, and basically it said we want to give you a chance to learn these texts, and you make your own decisions. And it really was not a hard sell like the other ones. So I ended up there, and. But it was not only just that sense that they were also liberal and they were not hard sell. There was a particular approach that one of the teachers there, Dove Berkowitz, um, really, I, I was exposed to this approach, which was he was studying he was studying one of these ancient texts, the Mishnah, which uh, usually is seen as a pretty dry kind of legalistic text. And it says this law and then this law and this law and this law. And what he was doing was looking at it much more like a piece of literature and said, no, it's not, you can't just understand this law and then analyze it to death. You have to look at the whole the whole chapter and how did they compose that chapter? And why did they put this in the beginning with this in the end? And why did they choose that word? And when he did that, it was like, it was like a revelation to me. It was like the sparks were flying. Yeah. And because I said, and because I was an anthropology major in college, and I said, these rabbis are doing anthropology on themselves because anthropology was really, in the Western world, anthropology was one of the first fields that started to actually move away from the reductionist approach and say, if you want to understand another culture, you actually can't just come in and say, okay, why are they doing that strange thing? And figure, you have to look at their whole picture. How do they put it together? And and so that was saying, like they're they're doing it, they're creating like a mosaic. They're putting these things together and remaking their own culture in order to like make it work in the new, you know, in their new circumstances. And they were basically like, I said, like, this is amazing because because I was really attracted to this way of thinking, this this way that because I've been, never been that analytical, you know. And this this right, yeah. This, some of us don't uh, don't actually are not so well suited to the style of of mental training we get growing yeah. up. There's some people who are more suited to that. Yeah, like God bless right. them. <laughs> they they yeah. are fortunate. And yeah, that not everyone is meant to be a reductionist thinker or a reductive thinker. Maybe that's a little less of a pejorative, but just to say. Actually, there's different ways of thinking, and and all are, all of them are needed in a sense, right? If this, just to make absolutely sure, when you're describing this whole picture thinking, this is synonymous with ecological thinking in your usage, correct? Yeah. So that's that's what I later on discovered. First, I was excited to find this like in Jewish texts, but then after a while, I started to 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 read some of the ecological thinkers and and, and realized. Wow, this is the same thing. This is the same way an ecosystem works. An ecosystem, you have to understand an ecosystem. And this is this is a shift that we're seeing, a paradigm shift in science that says we need to understand things not only by putting it under the microscope, but we need to go out in the field and see what are the relationships between these trees and those birds and those fungi and the, you know, and that soil and that, you know, all of those things. We need to put that together 
and to see, okay, like how does this ecosystem work? And that's so uh, that was really exciting to say, like you know, that's the same type of thinking. It's a sh- it's a shift. Absolutely, and we're in this shift together. Right. <laughs> Here, here's a-, a here's a perspective uh, that make that comes to mind as you're describing this and also how science is shifting one of the favorite my favorite stories from the world of anthropology and i don't know what era i can't it was one of these early anthropologists basically describing going into a traditional culture and asking a a question along the lines of what is your religion or tell me about your religion and realizing that they didn't have a word for religion because it was their life. It was everything they did was their how we might say their religion, but it wasn't differentiated from anything right. else. And so in the field of religious studies, ac- in academics, people are talking about that now. This is the shift in religious studies, thinking to say, well, yeah, we could say that religious studies is studying these things that we call religions, you know, the old books and and sort of these the big five groups and all of that, these these world religions. But we could also say, well, maybe religion is just being poorly defined and maybe anyone's religion is actually just their life. And if we use the same lens then to to study how people live, what does that tell us? Like how what if someone said oh, I'm I'm not religious? Okay, well, how do you how do you live? What what is your life and how is it meaningful or how is it not? If we have that broader view as well, uh and I I don't have a a specific way of connecting it to ecological thinking, but I wanted to kind of throw it your way, Natan, and, and get get your take. What 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 does that mean? How does that fit into the picture or, or to your book, if, if at all? Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's it's just another example of what I'm saying, like kind of a shift because, like, we in Western academia have like siloed everything. Like, we want to say, okay, I'm going to study religion, and I'm going to like, you know, and the, and there's certain there's certain usefulness in, in in making those silos. But one of the things we're seeing in 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 you know in various fields and also just in education is like it doesn't always make sense to silo something. And as and what you're saying is true. In traditional cultures, it wasn't like religion we kind of like have gotten there in our sort of western world because we've like compartmentalized not that's the thing is like we've not only compartmentalized like our style of thinking we've compartmentalized our lives and so you get to you get to modern you know from you know western europe and to the you know modernity as it came to you know european and american you get to this this notion that like okay i do this and then like on sunday or saturday whatever it is then i do my religion but that's not how anybody in a traditional culture as you mentioned that's not how a traditional culture works it's like what are you talking about religion it's like it's that this is how you live your life and that's everything you do you know yeah. And, and yes, so, the, the idea, I mean, religion is kind of a useless <laughs> term these days in a lot of ways. Sometimes people ask me, well, you're a rabbi, you must be religious. <laughs> I really don't like ask, answering the question because it means so much to so many yeah. different people. It's it's It has become a loaded term in, in many, many ways. And so I, sure. I prefer not even to get into it a lot of the time. Well, you know, you can go, you can go as far as you want down this down this road because you know, God God is also a loaded term. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of loaded terms. <laughs> you know, because you said people have all this baggage, and you say, you know, as we said, like you know, the God that you don't believe in, I don't believe in that God either. And the you know, because what if God, you know, what if God is not like an old man, you know, in the sky with a beard? And, you know, what if God is just like the inherent spark of holiness in everything, in you, in me, in the, in this table, in the books? Mm-hmm. You know, what if that, you know, and then 
then how does that affect how you you know walk down the street and you know it's it's a very different thing yeah absolutely the there's a, a question that's coming to mind and i think well because you're a rabbi you can you can reflect on this and it relates to this whole idea of how are we thinking are we compartmentalizing or are we are we bringing it all together and it occurs to me that if you look at traditional commentators within the jewish tradition of commentary that some folks really like to look back in time and say well these are different there's different people saying different things so the the medieval commentator nachmanides for example loves to argue with his predecessor rashi he's always saying well rashi says this but he's wrong because of that and he's actually he's breaking it apart and then there's other thinkers like tosafot who were the grandchildren and their that school uh, of rashi who are saying they're always trying to find the way in which it all fits together and in this interesting way, right, we can kind of look at that as a whole, and maybe that's that's hopeful towards a future in which we can have a place for the people that need to. And we all need to on some level to com- compartmentalize as part of that. But then there's also that those minds and those times, and maybe that might even be the majority of culture in the future of people who are putting it back together. And I, I'm curious, in, in maybe an imagined future inspired by the different types of Torah commentary. What is there a balance you see between those those two frames of mind? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's like I think we always we always really need it. I don't, yeah, don't don't like take me, you know, that we only need to put things together. I'm excited about that because I think we don't do it enough. Right, but there you're, is- you're like a prophet for uh, for ecological <laughs> so, thinking. You're bringing it back. There's a passion. You're riding that wave. Yeah, you know, well, we have a, a lack of it. Yeah, no, I mean, so, you know, and so we do want to find that balance. But like, so for example, this is something that I've just been thinking about recently because, um, you know, I don't know if you saw recently, there was a little thing in the New York Times about like the, you know, the most important person you've never heard of. And it was this economist, you know, the English economist who was basically writing and quantifying about all that we, you know, all of the benefit we get from the natural world. And, and then actually my, my niece actually is just like, works at, you know, at Stanford, one of these institutes at Stanford University, which is actually working on this. It's like, how can we actually build into our economic structure um, the idea that we are benefiting and dependent upon our, upon the natural, upon the natural, because just taking a look at it now, like, what do we have now? You have all of these basic, these companies, these corporations are doing, they're doing their thing. They're creating widgets and their whole goal is to like make their profit. And if they can get away with it, they're going to like throw as much of their waste into the oceans and into the air as they can get away with, because that, that's because how the system works. That's how <laughs> that's, the system is set up. If the there's a law up, and there's called, loopholes, right? Most human beings, especially people in those kind of situations, are acting in self-interest. And that's, yeah, something right. we, we need and to do. And it's aware. called, you know, it's called externalities. That's what you call an economic, you know, economists will say, well, these are externalities. And where, you know, and who pays for the externalities? Well, not the company, but like society, and it's not really. And until recently, nobody's really even quantifying, you know, how much we're paying for these externalities. But what? So that's a, that's an example of like we think about things by 
narrowing it down to one narrow focus and we cut out all of the networks of relation that are actually really happening and what if we actually shifted and now it's great to see that like you got this institute at stanford and you got this economist in england people are saying hey what if we actually restructured our economic analysis to say Companies should actually pay for all the, the, the things that they're using, you know, a natural resource, and we should build this in. And that would, that, I mean, I imagine, talk about like, I imagine a world, like we could do that. We could actually build a, an economic system where all of this was taken into account. And a company, when they made a product, they'd say like, you know what, I'm going to like recycle, I'm going to make this so it's automatically recyclable 100% because I need to, if I have any waste, I'm going to have to pay for it. So, you know, we could create a world which is so much, you know, so much uh, better than, than what we're doing now. And it has to do with that shift from instead of looking at the narrow, the narrow focus, looking at the whole and looking at the relationships. So that's what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. It doesn't mean that we don't, it doesn't mean that nobody's looking at the details. No, you, in order to do that properly, you got to have somebody looking at the details, but right. uh, you don't stop there. Yes, and and in a related uh, area uh, that you get into in your book, this idea of fractals or of nested structures, or is it nesting structures? You'll correct me. Well, I saw, you know, I call it nestedness. Yeah, Nest, nestedness. There yeah. we go. And so, yeah. it's not the kind of let's say it's it's how the greater order, the wider circles of our lives or of society are bigger versions of the smaller circles. I'm I'm putting this not as eloquently as you did, uh, Natan, but I just to say this question of how is living today, how is how is my life today related to planetary well-being? Those kinds of things. Or what what are the, in what in how can I make a personal choice in this moment that in some way is a step towards a wider, holistically integrated planetary consciousness right well yeah exactly and so that's one of the things i talk about again about like this is one of the main ways we like get out of that either or because we live in these either or the either like my individual interest or the or or the communal interest either my country or the world either you know either this and that's not a true either or in the natural world like if you know i talk about like when i talk about nestedness i talk about you have a you know you have a cell but that cell has its has its membranes and but it's part of an organ and it has to relate to the organ so the membranes are permeable and so it has its membranes but it's also open to back and forth with the with the organ and the organ is part of a body the organ has its own identity as an organ as a liver or a heart or whatever it is but it's also working to be in harmony with the greater whole which is the body and the body is also part of a family and so on and so on all the way up and all the way down and so this idea of nestedness and of permeable membranes means that we can't have an either or we actually need to work with both and and that really, that is a very practical kind of a thing. Like, you know, it's like, you know, I, I don't know if you're watching the the, the NBA playoffs right now. I'm, you know, but I am, that is not part of my religion. Okay, you know, I yeah, I think we need to be careful not to make that a religion. <laughs> no, but, but in the sense of it's not part of my life is what I meant. In the in okay, the wider yeah. sense, I, it's not a big. I'm not an active practitioner of NBA well, watching, I but I love 
basketball. Don't get me wrong. It's just at this point in my life, it's not a big part of, of who I am. I had to counsel my son not to get a not to get a Celtics tattoo because that would make it idol worship. So, <laughs> <laughs> but right, we uh, have to be careful how what what place in our pantheon uh, exactly you know, the but, NBA has. But I bring up the NBA because I think you know, and I read an article, an economics article about this because they're actually a very effective league structure because they balance cooperation and competition that is to say each team wants to win the championship but they share the tv revenues so that no one team it's not like you know la and new york are going to get all the profits because they have the biggest metropolitan area and so forth and they have a draft so that like so that the talent gets spread around somewhat randomly and so and it's the same thing even just if you're on a team like you see you're on a team everybody wants to be the big star they want to score the most points they also know that like, okay, if I never pass, if I never, you know, I like play defense, my team's going to lose. So they give up some of their own personal for the large. So we always are finding a balance between like my individual and the larger whole that I'm a part of. And if you look at climate change, you know, the, to the extent that we can have, you know, a, a any international agreements or like the biodiversity agreement that we just came up with last summer, that's a product of people are not like completely giving up their their national goals. Like they're not going to say, "Okay, I forget my forget my national economy." No, they're saying I have to find a balance. We all are in this together. If the planet like is destroyed, then we're all just we're all sunk. So how can we find a balance between like, okay, I have an individual identity or a national identity. And I also have to take in the fact that I'm nested within a larger identity. How do we find that both and rather than either or? I was just watching uh, a documentary. There's just a two-part series on Netflix about Bill Russell, who I had heard of. I'd heard him called one of the all-time greats, but it was I didn't know much about him. And when I watched this series, I realized that, yeah, he wasn't any kind of all-time leader in much besides championships, that he has 11 championships. And it was partly because he was such a team player. And he was right. an incredibly smart defensive player. But he somehow, in all his crafty ways, managed to pull off an unbelievable winning streak in all these championships. But he was re re remarkable, almost primarily for the way in which he was just seeing himself as one member of a larger structure versus Will Chamberlain, who's who everyone's heard of. He's the only player ever to, you know, get 100 points in a game. And he was this incredibly dominant individual, but who barely won any championships, thanks to Bill Russell, who always opposed him. <laughs> and that was just such an amazing story and juxtaposition that and, and also what our culture emphasizes Look, I'm sure if people are big time basketball fans in a historical sense, they know all about Bill Russell more than I would. But I heard way more about Will Chamberlain and sort of a more mainstream as a more mainstream NBA fan. And it's just interesting how he was so propped up. But relative to Bill Russell, he was not a winner. He was a scorer. And yeah. his attitude on his team was much more individualistic. And he was a fantastically skilled player, but he didn't win the championships like Bill Russell. Yeah, no, exactly. And that, that that's the thing. It's like, how do you find that balance? How do you find that, that, you know, and this idea that we are like cells in an organ, you know, that we are, we don't have, we don't have to give up our, our boundaries. That's an important thing. It's like having boundaries is, is okay, because there are some people who will go in the other direction and say like, 
all boundaries are bad and we should not have any categories and we should not have it, you know, that's actually going to end up, you know, backfiring. And, you know, but mm -hmm. the fact is, you know, because, you know, in Judaism, we can say like, okay, you know, I'm proud to be, I'm proud to be Jewish, but being Jewish doesn't mean that it's only all about Jews. That's one of the, that's one of the shifts that we've seen in the last, you know, several years and, you know, decade, decades in Judaism where, we are feeling like, okay, I can actually, you know, sort of contribute, as, you know, contribute not just as an individual, I can contribute as a Jew to helping the outside, you know, the, the larger world. And, and I don't both, have to only give. To, right. Yeah, I right. Only, only have to give to, to Jewish causes and things. Cells, because, right. Right. Cells in our bodies have semi-permeable membranes <laughs> that right. a healthy cell can, can let in what it needs and also contribute exactly. what it needs, but it doesn't need to be totally blocked off. If a cell exactly. was non-permeable, it would die. That's how it right. works. It needs to be fed from without right. and it needs to contribute. And, and right. there's a certain and, way in which Jews today are living in a, a place of relative well-being. Maybe it doesn't feel like that every day, um, but... Compared to a lot of our ancestors, right? We are in a place where we have more confidence and autonomy and right. general settledness such that I think there's a really for the first time in thousands of years, uh, may, it, may it continue, we're opening up more widely um, and able to maintain that identity simultaneously, as you're saying. Right. Right. Well, and so, yeah. And, and, and as, as, as we all know, it's like, you know, the boundaries are shifting. Where do we put, you know, how permeable are our boundaries? And that's one of those things, <laughs> right. you know, because we do live in an open society. And yes, there is the whole resurgence of anti-Semitism, which, you know, is, 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 is not to be ignored. But we live in a society where plenty of people are happy to marry Jews and all sorts of things, you know. And, and so, in some ways, how do we, how do we um, find the right balance between Okay, yeah, but we actually want our traditions. We actually want to. We want to actually have Hebrew. We all actually want to have. And so, where do we put those? How 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 permeable do we want to have our our, our boundaries? Uh, in order to in order to create, because this is one of the things I talk about. Life itself needs a boundary. You know, you go back to the earliest you know research into what was the first you know single cell organisms. It has to do with a cell. It has to do with something that separates that metabolism off from the environment so that it can actually have emergence it emerges from a bunch of like molecules into life here here's a play on words it's putting the ami in amoeba <laughs> so ami for those who don't speak hebrew means my people and an amoeba is a single-celled organism so right. how how do we understand that exactly. that can exist and coexist there i'm i was really glad to see that you quoted the beautiful poem, The Fourfold Song by Rav Cook. I was also kind of delighted and shocked that I hadn't seen this translation before from Daniel Matt. And so this is a, because I, I included this same, that same poem in my book uh -huh. and uh, kind of riffed off of another translation. But this is a song that really ties it all together, or it's a poem about singing songs, really, where we sing the song of the self and we sing the song of the people, the song of humanity and the song of all existence, every rock and every tree and, and all of that, all the worlds. And, but the kind of the culmination of those four songs is when we can sing them all simultaneously. And that's right. the song of songs, this highest kind of most sacred song. This is the song right. of truly the song of El, the song of God, the song of Yisrael. And it's 
that's the goal, is it not? It's to be able to be in harmony, to cultivate our individual songs, so to speak, all four of those levels, but then to be able to sing them simultaneously. Right, exactly. Yes. So, and, and, and it is a beautiful poem. And part of that is because it really does reflect, first of all, how the natural world works, but also reflects a deep way that the, a deep understanding in Judaism. That Judaism, I think, at its core is never either or. It's only tribalism or only universalism. It's actually, I think that at, at Judaism, the core has always been this nestedness. Like we don't, we don't ignore the individual, but we understand the individual is always part of a community, and the community is always part of the larger humanity. And, and what, just like what Rav Cook says, so that nestedness is really one of the important principles where Jewish core sort of traditional thinking really kind of like you can see how it integrates with with an ecological perspective absolutely and so when you say ecological perspective i so i don't think you mean just the natural world and environmentalism i i think it's yes and here's another example of right. pearls you string together ecological thinking it cannot just be about in the most literal sense, saving the trees or those kinds of things. Right. It's, also, it's a whole way of being and thinking and showing up that's beyond just climate change. Right, exactly. Because, you know, as, as we've talked about, like that, that way of thinking needs to inform how we think about our economy and our society and, you know, all of these things. It's not only, it's not only about the, the, you know, the environment, the natural world, because <laughs> all, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. That's one of the amazing things about these principles. They, they work on all levels of life, whether you're talking about a cell or you're talking about a university or you're talking about whatever it is, because that's how life works. There's, there's another word, by the way, that doesn't exist in a lot of traditional cultures or even older Jewish sources, the environment. You mean right. reality? You mean everything? <laughs> the idea, right. even the, the way we even use those terms today, exactly. we are somehow separate from nature. That, right. that all of this, even if we're indoors somewhere, it, it's all just nature, a.k.a. reality. <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. And even, you know, and even nature is not really, you know, it's like that's not from the Jewish tradition. You know, it's like Jewish tradition would call it creation. Right now, all existence. The, so, I mean, the word teva, which often today in Hebrew is used as nature. Back in the day, if you look up in uh, the Jastro Talmudic Dictionary, right, this of this early sources from fifteen hundred years ago, let's say, that's not what teva means. It, it has a different meaning. That right, the word didn't exist. Right, right, yeah, no. So that and and it comes back again to that wholeness, that sense of like, why do we, why are we compartmentalizing when in fact all of this, you know, it, it, there there is a whole. We are all part of it. It's like we are not separate from the trees and the grass and the and the rocks. We are all, we are all in you know in Jewish terms, we are all created. What does it mean to be created? That's a whole other story. It doesn't mean right. that like you know that that five thousand something years ago, you know, God said I'm da da da, but we understand that you know the the you know the Hebrew word for for the world olam olam actually has is related to the this word for hiddenness um you know in the sac in the sense that like this world that we see has a value and a, and a, and a, if you could say you know a sacredness a holiness that is there if we open our eyes if we if we if we take away the veil of of hiddenness but that word that you know the olam is is uh in some ways it's all hidden sparks 
and we can just we we need to be able to understand that it's like it's hidden but we can actually open our eyes to see it yeah it's uh to to quote the grateful dead wake up to find out <laughs> yeah <laughs> well that, that you are the eyes of the world is the other part which is good we could bring yeah, that yeah uh, in another set of pearls but, perhaps but you but know that that that's another example of nestedness because you say like you know and i talk about this in the world i talk about like Kabbalah and composting. I don't know if you got to that that section. It's like, you know, if you want your compost pile to work, you got to cover it. You know, you got to cover it with. If you don't cover, you know, your 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 smelly kitchen scraps, you're just going to attract, you know, rodents and and flies, and you're gonna you're gonna like give up on the whole project in a week. But if you cover your compost with, you know, with the dry leaves. Then the compost is gonna like it's gonna compost. It's not gonna bother you, and that's the same principle we have in in Kabbalah, as 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 you will know. We have sparks, but the sparks can't be just exposed. They have to be covered with, with with, with you know with a garment, and so we have all these levels of yes, we have we could say like God is in everything in the world, but we can't always see it because it's covered by a garment. But if it wasn't for the garment, what do we mean by the garment? The garment is all the individuals, the trees, the rocks, all the things we see. That's just a garment for the sparks of holiness. And so you can see that it's like things are nested. The sparks are nested within the garments. And uh, that's how it works. Yeah. And there is a sense of this uh, in under and relating to our own nested structure, our own place in our people, let's say, or the nation there's a way in which we are also dependent. I don't know if that's too strong a word on other people being nested in their structures. And and here's what I mean. I remember, I guess at this point, it might have been 10 years ago, uh, President Barack Obama talking about things like, we need actually both parties, Republicans and, and Democrats to be healthy, because we're part of a relationship and if both parties are not healthy, then we're actually not able to do our jobs and have our dialogue and our disagreements and all of that. Now, we've certainly moved uh, pretty far away from that healthy uh, relatedness uh, since then. Sadly, uh, you know, may it return to holistic well-being. And so as a Canadian, and I'm also I'm a dual citizen, but I'm living in Canada. I talk to a lot of people that okay, we are, I think, on average, a more secular society than the U.S., and I talk to a lot of people who identify as secular. And then I say something like, well, what do you do in December for the holidays? And they say, oh, well, we have a Christmas tree. And I say, okay, well, I am also relatively secular. I certainly know a lot of secular Jews and they don't do that and nor would they. And so those Jews that I know identify as secular Jews and have some kind of relationship as a cultural Jew. Now, my question is, is there a place in your life, you know, imagined secular Canadian for having a relatedness to your sense of peoplehood beyond a secular Canadian. Because I have a feeling that there are ways in which, let's say it's Christianity or let's say it's Irish culture or those kinds of things. I have a desire to encourage people to relate to their ancestry. Uh, it's, I think for, for a lot of reasons, Jews have been able to kind of throw out, so to speak, or leave behind elements which aren't serving us and still maintain a sense of ethnic identity or lineage connectedness that is healthy in many ways. In, in many ways, we could use more kind of rootedness in our own culture. But there's a way in which a lot of my, let's say, neighbors who descend from Christianity haven't done that. And I have a desire or I wish I could impart a sense of peoplehood or something like that. The second song, 
of between individual and humanity, what's there? And maybe it's Canadian, but maybe there's something else. And I, I know there's some of that reclaiming happening, but in, in the same sense that Republicans and Democrats need each other for wholeness, I feel like the identity of secular on its own or just neutral or something like that without any qualifications is not quite there yet. And I, this isn't meant as a critique. It's more, it's more of a yearning that I feel like I'm more able to be a Jew within a larger framework of these four levels if I'm also relating to people who have a sense of that as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I think what you said just now is like the sense of a yearning. The people have a yearning to be to be part of something. And we need all of these, what you tell, like, you know, sociologists might call like in, intermediate structures. You know, you can't just be like an individual in this huge sea of the nation. You know, it's like, I was just, you know, I think, you know, I've been thinking recently just about like how much I value a sense of having neighbors, you know, because I walk my dog every day, you know, it's like, and walk the dog and I, and I wave to the neighbors. And it's like, and it's not a big deal, but it's like, it makes me feel actually uh, something that is like, okay, these are people that we are like waving. We are acknowledging. We might say hello, or we might ask how you are. I think it is a big deal, yeah. Natan, by yeah. the way. I think it is a big deal and not, so, I mean, I know you're kind yeah. of like trying to be maybe nonchalant or whatever that, that impulse comes from, but I just, from my end, it's a big deal. I think loneliness is one of the greatest epidemics we yeah. face, certainly yeah, in the West exactly. here. And I, I, the ability simply to wave and have a, a relational moment it, it, it's almost beyond it's like priceless right exactly in that sense and we've and we've on some level we're we've lost a lot of that you know it's like people are are are, are glued to their to their screens and all these kind of things that are going on and they're rushing around and people have a yearning to feel nested within these 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 a sense of belonging to something and we and and when we don't have that then it gets really, you know, then you find like sort of people going to extremes and, and you know, and and joining groups and cults and, and things that, that become extremely like identified with something. And then you, and then it gets unhealthy and you start to, you know, one of the things, as you mentioned, like, you know, Republicans, Democrats, you know, conservatives, you know, it's like we are all part of one system. And if like, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no way that it's like that one side is going to get like extreme and the other side is just going to continue to be healthy. They play off each other. And so the, it, it, it spins off and it spirals it's because we are all part of, of the same system. One of the things that I talk about this, just to, to, to you know, to, to stay on this point, because the ability to have a productive argument is is really important and it's all based on this idea of nestedness because if what we see what happened what's what's basically happened in, in the united states is that you have like you know one side that says like you know we're gonna burn down the house like my side's gonna win and we're gonna destroy it and, and when you have that kind of a feeling then you can't have a productive argument you can only have a productive argument when you say okay i have my side and you have your side but we're part we understand we're part of something larger and we understand that like i may disagree with you but i'm not going to i'm not trying to vanquish you because we're both part of it yeah no there there it has gotten to a really uh scary and destructive or at least threats of destructive place the and there's a part of me that sees it as kind of just the the continuation of a long progression of of the dissolution of of what it should be in the sense of the way that 
and it's not just in the US, I'll say in Canada also, the political system, and maybe it's the, just the nature of the medium is the message and how media works. I remember learning a long time ago that that if you could, you can read Abraham Lincoln's, uh, one of his sort of opening statements at his debate. I don't know if it was a primary or to run for president or whatever. I guess he wasn't in a primary because he was an independent, but it's something like he spoke for 45 minutes and people listened. And can you imagine if, if we had a level of societal discourse in this, in which that's how, it, that's how it works, but to play the game, to win the competition or to even have a shot today in federal politics. People have to be good at saying one thing and meaning another as one of their skills. If someone does not possess the ability to smooth over roughness by distracting or talking about something else, and that is one of the qualities of every winning candidate. And guess what? That is not a particularly noble or endearing quality in humanity. It is a quality of necessity that everyone needs to, to develop. And so I think about threats and, and kind of the worsening of it, but I don't, I, I'm not particularly overwhelmed by the nobility uh, of of that's required to rise to that level. If you know what I mean, it's it's sort of a system which, in order to even get there, you have to play this um, smoke and mirrors game um, in order to be successful. And I and I'm not saying that's equal to to threats and violence or any anything like that. I'm just saying there's a way in which the system has created uh, a competition where it's not. Um, yeah, it's not always so moral, equal, ethical, noble. Yeah, no, I mean, we have, look, I mean, there's all sorts of things in terms of like how that whole political system is working. But in some ways, it's like, it's 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 gotten into our whole society. And a lot of that is like the mm -hmm. social media and all of these kind of things and the, 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 the silos that, that people are in. But when you no longer have a sense of, I am both, you know, in this circle and I'm part of the larger circle, then you're then you're then you're done for because then you're just going to be like trying to trying to destroy each other and then we're and, done for yeah then we're all done for because then you're then then you just then you just end up destroying it so you know the the key to being able to have an argument that's a product and in order to live in a society you have to have productive arguments there's no there's no going to be like a utopia where we're all going to somehow agree like that's not going to happen and that's not even the goal the goal, the goal and, is and to be able to disagree, you know. Hopefully that's one of the things that rabbis learn in rabbinical school is how to have a good disagreement, what we call a right. machloket, right? right? Can we, we might have opposite opinions, but can that be part of how we relate? Can exactly. it be one element of our ongoing relationship is the fact that we have different stances on this position and we might even vigorously debate, but that doesn't mean belittling each other. It doesn't mean uh, dehumanizing each other. And it might right. not even mean all the time feeling great at the end of it, right? That's that's just kind of reality. I like to feel great at the end of a good dialogue, but unfortunately, we're not always there. But what what is that quality that, that is cultivated? The ability right. to have a healthy disagreement for the sake of the larger picture. Right. Well, no, that exactly, and that's one of the things I write about in the book. It's you know, it, you know, as you know, in, in Hebrew, it's called machloket l'shem shemaim. You know, this is called an argument for the sake of heaven, and we go back to Hillel and Shammai. But you know, this is, and you know, one of the things that I talk about is that like it goes back to this structure that you mentioned. Like you know, you can be a secular, you can be a secular Jew, but you're still a Jew, which is to say, <laughs> Judaism is structured different than Christianity. It's it's Judaism is not just a religion; it's a people and a religion, and 
And because of that, because we, because Judaism in its very structure, the way that Judaism is set up is that you're a Jew in your body, whether you're converted or, you know, and, 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 and symbolically are reborn through the mikvah, through the, you know, or, or you were born a Jew, like you're a Jew in your deepest kishkas, as they say in Yiddish, you know, in your, in, in your, in your guts. guts. And, your gut. <laughs> you know, and, and because of that, that's that's why you can have like two Jews, three opinions, because it doesn't fall apart if we disagree. Like you know, ah, like that. Judaism a is confidence in just our identity that allows us to exactly because Jews are Jews, and you can have all the disagreements, but you're still a, you're still a Jew, and it's the same way that it works in a family, as, as as you know, you know, we know from our kids, like you know, it's like <laughs> kids will argue with it within the family because they know we're a family, and I'm not, you know, it's like. It's different. It's different because you know you you know you're part. You're held within part of a structure, and so you can disagree within that within that structure. Uh, safety, and that's why risks of uh, abuse or excommunication are so damaging. And it's not because of just the 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 danger of actually being exiled or something like that, or kicked kicked out or or threatened physically away from a family, which. Right. That's the point at which it's no longer possible. It's it's the hint of that threat, and that relates back to what you were talking about and the the political the- scheme uh, theme as well. That right. there's a way in which the possibility of that ending is yeah. enough to rattle people to the point of how can we how can we really express ourselves anymore? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, and that's how you know when I talk about it in the book, and that's 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 the advice in you know in, in 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 marriage counseling as well. You know, it's like you complain as much as you want about like, okay, you know, I don't like the way you didn't do the dishes or whatever it is. That's not destructive. That's actually you know, but if it's like when you start to hit the the relationship itself, you are this or you are that. That's different than I don't like the way you did this or that because. You can, you know, you can have a safety of arguing within a container, but if you start attacking the container, then it's then it's a very different thing, and that that becomes destructive. Yeah. So let's let's talk about uh, the culture of relationship versus a culture of control. And I, well, I'd like to maybe I'll just invite you to kind of introduce the concepts uh, and how that's both sort of, I guess, biblically, where those occur and how, how you understand those and, and what that means today to, to have a, a culture of relationship versus control. Yeah. So, you know, because I do go back, I say, like, where, where did this where did this way of thinking, this relational way of thinking come from? And I go back to the ecology, the ecology of the land of Israel. Basically, that that strip of land, which was basically like a backwaters in terms of the, the the major civilization and the ancient world, the Mesopotamian on the one hand and the Egyptian on the other hand, were both river cultures. And what I argue from the biblical text is that those cultures actually had this illusion, as it were, that that through their technology, through because the because their the the river was always there, and you could always capture the 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 strength of the river and the and the and the the nourishment coming down through the river. You could always capture that, and you could use all the canals and technology to capture that. They 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 built their culture around an illusion that we can control everything, and. That was actually very different than the land of Israel, which, uh, you know, is a, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 11, it points out, that's different. We're all, this is a land where we're dependent on the rain. And they understood that dependence on the rain to be dependent on God. 
It says God's God's eyes are on the land. And so what it meant was that we're in a constant relationship and there's no way that we can actually just like tie it all down and say, now we've got it, we can control it, we can go home. It's like every day you've got to be working on the relationship and you're working on the relationship because it was a difficult, a hilly a hilly land dependent on rain with a thin soil. You had to be dependent on knowing the land, being in relationship with, you know, what side of the hill am I on with your with your neighbors? You have to cooperate if you're going to build those terraces, those those stone wall terraces. You got to cooperate with your neighbors, and you got to be in relationship with God to say, "Am I building this kind of society that God's going to bless with the rain?" And so, the contrast was. You know, those societies that thought that they could, you know, it's it's very modern. If you think that you can use your technology to control everything and just forget about it, put it all in a box, and then that means that you don't actually want to see the things that you can't control. So you kick them out. You call that waste. And so we have that. We have that in our society today. It's like, okay, I don't want to see where my food comes from. I'm going to put it in a plastic thing and buy it in the supermarket. I don't want to see where my clothing comes from. I'm not going to look at the labels about the, you know where the sweatshops were in 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 Bangladesh or or someplace. I'm going to like, and we're going to like try and build this this world where everything is under control. And in fact. That's not as secure. It doesn't make us happier. It makes us more obsessed, and it makes us more obsessed with putting up more and more barriers, until we basically, you know, we we basically kind of like, uh, you know, have cut off all life. Whereas the relation, the, the culture of relationship says that, like, you know, you know, our our most secure place is not having complete control. Our most secure place is being in relationship. And that's, you know, that's where we have like with our holiday of Sukkot. And we say, okay, when we really want to want to feel our sense of, 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 of joy, our sense of greatest joy is not by going in our brick and mortar house. It's going outside in this flimsy structure and, and, you know, and enjoying things just in that moment, because we understand that like our, our, our real security comes from our relationship, and that and that has renewed every moment. And, and our embracing of impermanence too, exactly. Quite as well. Exactly. This is a flimsy exactly. structure; it's going to fall right. over. And that's one of right. the things with the culture of control. Part of the illusion that this is this is permanent. The idea right. that we can, yeah, you might be able to control things actually for a few generations. It turns out, but all those societies collapse. Right. <laughs> the most sustainable culture of all time is hunter gatherer. Now, assuming they can not be conquered, right? There's all these ins and outs, but there's a way, this great illusion that we had that somehow taming the land was sustainable. It turns out that if you, that the like surviving droughts and things like that is actually remarkably possible when people are living very, very harmoniously. With right. Well, again, you have that, you, you know, you try to, you see within, within Judaism, how you try to strike that balance. Like, okay, you know, we'll give you this illusion that you can own the land. But every six years, we're going to remind you that you don't really own the land. You know, we're going to give you this illusion that you can like manipulate the world and control things. But once every seven days, you're going to like stop trying to manipulate the world and understand that you're just got to be a creature like everybody else. And, let go and let God. You know, so that's the that's the balance because yeah, we do have as human beings, we do have this ability that we want to take some control. But how do you do that in such a way that you are not 
becoming like gods. You don't want to, you know, that's the, that's the whole, the, 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 the trick that they always talking in the Bible. It's like, don't think that you're gods. And you see that that was the Tower of Babel. You know, it's like you try that. That's what they were doing. They were trying to build with their technology this tower that was going to make them impermeable so that we will make a name for ourselves and we won't be scattered. They were, you know, they were actually building that out of a sense of fear because they remembered what happened in the flood where everybody was scattered. So, and then what happened? Then the exact what thing what their exact fear happened with that they were scattered because when you try to take complete control, it never works. Yeah, I wanna I wanna take that idea and and bring it to sort of t- right now and today. I see, and it's in a sense of us ecologically a holistic health, but also in a mental health sense. I often it's I don't it's sort of almost a catch twenty two. I don't have, and here we are in the twenty second day of of counting Omer when we're recording this <laughs> great number. That there's a way in which. People can wake up in our society and maybe they're wealthy and maybe they're not. But for many people, their job in in vis-a-vis a more traditional, let's say, society perspective is kind of redundant. Uh, we don't we're not surviving day to day. Yeah, forget even even the connections or the the songs we might sing together, literally, the literal cultural, you know, ritual and stuff is that. We're, we're actually, we're getting up and we're doing something and, and maybe it's our passion and maybe it isn't, but a lot of the job, the work we do from day to day, we're not, it's not critical right now. And that's partly because of our societal wealth, which is really a blessing on many levels, right? It's that we're living the dreams of our ancestors on many levels today. The fact that we have still, most of us, let's say in Western culture, relatively a, a secure food supply. Uh, and I guess depending on where we are, I don't want to broadly generalize too much, but that modern medicine exists. Like there's, there are ways in which our day-to-day needs are not as imminent as they used to be. And it's also, we're not as needed. Uh, there's a certain sadness to that as much as we have this great opportunity to do all these things. I've, I've heard that during wartime, true wartime, where everyone is absolutely needed for something, a lot of the psych wards are empty relative to normal times. And that's because there's a mental well-being that happens from imminence and being needed. So here, here's my catch-22 question. And feel free to respond to any of this or just to riff on whatever you like. Is Would it be better if we were poor? <laughs> would it be better if we were struggling in that greater sense? Is that some kind of bounce of your blessing in and of itself? Or is there a way to have our cake and eat it too? Is there a way to find this balance or is what we really need a kind of a kickstart? And I'm not, I'm, this is not a request. Oh God, I'm not bringing this in, but it's just, it troubles me. How is our abundance an affliction and how can we get beyond that? Yeah, no, I mean that, that you know, that, that I worry about that same question. Is it going to, are we going to have to get to a place where everything really falls apart in order for us to like really learn these lessons, which I hope not. You know, but it's, you know, it's like Yom Kippur. It's like we try to, you know, we we purposely fast, and so you know, in order to bring ourselves to a consciousness of mortality, and, and in order to in order to get there. So, like, you know, how can we actually do, you know, raise our consciousness to the fact that, like, yes, we are comfortable, but we're not as happy. Like, I agree with you. There's all sorts of documentation that, like, people come back from war and they don't know how to adjust to, like. The, the regular society because they 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 act they miss 
the sense of belongingness and 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 the camaraderie of their platoon and their and and it's like they don't feel and people report about just like being in a natural disaster and just say like you know this was terrible but it was also like the most amazing time of my life you know it was because everybody was pitching in and everybody was needed and that sense of that sense of tribe where everybody has got a meaningful place and part in it that's you know i think that there i think that people are yearning for that so like i think that we are in a place now in some ways i heard you know um the uh, um was one of the science fiction writers who was talking about this who was saying it's like maybe we're in a kind of a sweet spot now because we're actually you know our, our major structures haven't yet fallen apart but we're really feeling some of the some of the strain as things start to fall apart. So, like maybe now is a time when we can actually feel it. People are really feeling that sense of like, yeah, I do want you know this this sense of like, I need I need to have sense about neighbors. I need community. I need to feel part of something. And people are starting to make some of those changes, even though as we see it go in the other direction as well. More people are like just you know like losing themselves in their social media and things and you know and all of that. But at the same time, there's another trend happening, and so maybe we are in a, in a, you know in a in a grace period, maybe maybe in a place where we you know we have not completely fallen apart, but we're really starting to feel it. Um, that, that's that's maybe the hope. Um, yeah, because we don't need to crumble in order to rebuild. That's the thing that in, in spiritual growth, yeah, a person doesn't need to reach the absolute critical moment, the, the rock bottom moment to recover, actually. That right. is one path, but it's a pretty rough path, quite honestly. If it, Sometimes that's what people need. And I don't, I don't wish that for people, just like I don't wish that for society. I wish for us to notice there's some fractures. And to start doing the patchwork and and asking the critical questions about how is our foundation looking? That's exactly. What I, hope. I, I I like that perspective, Natan. And so when I I go camping a lot here, so I live on Vancouver Island. There's like limitless, seemingly beautiful camping spots, and it's just this whole chop wood, carry water <laughs> mentality, right? Like in Zen, that there's something. It's so simple. I go often with uh, my son. Sometimes I, I bring both kids, but it's just making fires, cooking food you know getting water going walks on the beach but your your days are full and it's it's work it's not a it's not a vacation actually but it's it's so simple and it it's just such an easy way to to get back to what the basics and the fundamentals of what makes us human and what makes us happy yeah well no exactly and that's why you know there is that thing of like you know it's just like the when the food just tastes better when you're camping even though it's like you know <laughs> not objectively but yeah. because <laughs> because yeah we we yearn for that sense of like being in touch again and that's the that's the that's the emergence when you sort of like when you're really in touch with the realities of your life the realities of your body the realities of like having food needing food and then being able to get food that's like a feedback loop and whenever you can really be in touch and not have it be so separate then you feel then you feel that spark again to come back to the sparks of this and, and the flames it's like when you know and and we can do that to us you know we can build that in like so uh, you know we are not camping all the time, but we have a garden and we have a compost. And like, so every day or two, I'm taking, you know, I'm taking my, my kitchen scraps out into the yard and I'm putting it into the compost. And then like this time of year, okay, we're spreading the compost out over the garden because we're going to start planting our garden. And so you can bring some of that in to a lesser or greater extent. 
um, even as we're living our modern lives. Right. Well, there's that teaching. Uh, there's many teachings like this in, in the Jewish spiritual tradition of, can you take a piece of Shabbat with you, of this, this uh, restful oasis, glorious refreshment with you, even when you're working? I like that, the camping metaphor. Can you be camping even when you're not camping? Right? That's almost like <laughs> well, a, that's, this kind of modern spiritual ideal. <laughs> again, well, again, that's that's what Sukkot is, right? Because in Sukkot, like you're sitting there and you're kind of like, it's a little like camping because you're outdoors, you know, the wind is blowing, it might be raining a little bit, whatever it is, you know, it's like you're sitting there. And you're out in and and hopefully in a beautiful, uh, beautiful place where you can see the sky and you can see the trees, and yet you're sitting at a table, you know, sharing sharing a wonderful meal. So it's like this sort of you're both in and out at the same time, and that's really in some ways what we're trying to what we're trying to do. How can we evoke that and 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 bring to mind that yeah, you know, our real our real dwelling doesn't have to be like this huge structure. A dwelling can just be. Uh, a th- you know a thatched roof, and uh, and we do that all the time. I talk about like you know in Yom Kippur where we say like okay I'm just going to stop eating for a day, and feel what it like feels feel what that's like and remind myself okay that I'm mortal. You know it's like and 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 what does that do to my consciousness to say like okay you know what I am mortal, and and Shabbat. So we have all of these these are part of our our reminders in Judaism that try to keep us in touch. And that that was one of the not so gentle blessings of the pandemic is I, it was like a wake up call. I think for a lot of people who are living a relatively charmed life, let's say it was a reminder of, Oh wow. Things really could go wrong in a big way. And a real big wake up call. I want to ask one more sort of topical book question before we move uh, to our, our our closing round and Natan. And you can say, answer this however you like, but I, I want to just give you a chance to reflect on on the nature of what you, the term mitzvah, which you're using in this sense of it literally means commandment. But the way I understood it in your writing was a conscious action with a simultaneous acknowledgement of the unknowns in the world. Like what what does it mean to to act with intention and also acknowledge that so much is out of our control? Yeah, so I mean, you know, that is one of the one of the three sort of like main principles that I talk that is both in common with a Jewish Jewish core value and with systems thinking or ecological thinking because mitzvah is like you know what what Malcolm Gladwell had you know sort of uh, popularized with tip as a tipping point you know and and in ecological speak it's you know a bifurcation event it's like you could do a small action and that small action can have like a uh, you know, an effect that's way out of proportion. It can have a huge effect. It's like that that uh, butterfly effect, which we know, like in a complex system, you can have a small, tiny change and it can have like a giant effect, but you don't know, you can't predict that. You know, so there's, so that's, that's, the, the, that's the sweet spot, this point where you say like, you know what, I'm going to do this action. And I'm going to do it not for myself or not because I know it's going to have like this result, but I'm going to do it because it's the right thing to do. Maybe it's because God commanded it. Maybe because I just know that this is the right thing to do. Maybe I'm going to join this committee or I'm going to go vote. I'm going to do this small action and maybe it won't have make any difference, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's the right thing. But maybe it's going to change everything because, and that's, and that really is how the world works. The world works by small actions that might go viral again another malcolm gladwell term that like really describes like it goes viral because there is something that like that particular thing just happened to catch on 
you know uh, and 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 we see that all the time in our lives it's that it doesn't follow a predictable logic but you know i tell the story of how i you know how my wife and i got married you know it's like how she was you know i was living 3 hours away and she decided like you know i think i will go to this wedding and you know and we you know it just turned out and then you know it's like the day after that she tells me we're getting married so uh, <laughs> you have to read the book to see the whole story but it's good oh, to be uh, intuitive <laughs> Yeah, you know, so a little a small action can change can change the world or it can change your life, but you don't know. And that and that is really it's a, it's part of that paradigm shift in science to say that like yeah, in systems in system science, you can predict like the whole system, the parameters of a whole system, but you can never predict how the individual is going to act in that system. And so, and it, so it, it says that there is freedom in the world. There's, there's a, you know, David can beat Goliath and you don't know. And you talk about, you know, Vaclav Havel uh, in, you know, talking about like in prison and, you know, like fighting this huge Soviet empire and seem to be like up against like the whole, you know, huge world, a few dissidents, but you keep on doing the action. And then all of a sudden, like overnight, that you know that huge empire collapses and that's the way the world works and so mitzvah is an example of like a tipping point yeah the the i think it's in zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance robert m piercing talks about having a super saturated solution you you know you have water warm water and you put a bunch of salt in there or whatever and then you put the cup in the fridge and now there's more salt in there than it shouldn't ordinarily hold and you can't see the salt but all you have to do is take it out and tap the glass this one action and everything comes pouring down that right. it's possible for us to have realizations like that it's like we've been working on something for many years and suddenly the insight comes right or yes a single action and i i like to think it's a it's a single heartfelt action the sense people can sometimes have of i need to do this and it might totally go <laughs> you know, against me, this might hurt my career or whatever, but I need to do this because it's true and it's honest and it's needed. And those kinds of actions, I think, especially have a potential to really shift and change and precipitate a greater, uh, yeah, change. All right, exactly. And, you know, and so it is exactly listening to that intuition, listening to and understanding that that a small action can have huge effects. And so pay attention to those, to those I intuitions. And it's also, a, it's also a kind of a, uh, 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 um, a way of sort of like preventing this kind of arrogance of again like that culture of control to say that like you know what we don't control everything like you just like that saturated solution you know that that's going to happen it's going to take it out of the refrigerator you're going to tap that glass but you don't know which exact place it's going to that that catalyst is going to start you can never predict exactly where that you know where you can throw a rock at a window. You don't know exactly what the pattern of the shatter is going to be, because right. you can tell the system, you can't tell the individual, and right. that's a place where science has actually said, you know, we've come to a place where there are certain things that that have that are going to remain a mystery. We can't actually predict everything. Humility, it's, yeah. it's a good thing. That's we should be uh, sprinkling into everything we do. Exactly. And, and again, humility means that we un we understand that we are not in complete control. Yeah, absolutely. So, Natan, if is there anything you? I'll give you uh, sort of the the mic is yours. Is there anything uh, you'd like to share as we end? And also, uh, 
whether that can be just telling people where to get a hold of you, please share that as well. Any, any, the best way, uh, you know, to, to follow what you're doing or to buy your book, but also anything, any final remarks you'd like to make to the listeners, you can, I'll let you wrap that all up together. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess to say that like, you know, for all of that, this place in history where, you know, things are really falling apart. You know, it's like we've got a lot of crises going on. You know, in in in, in politics and and in the climate and economics and all sorts of things. And at the same time, we're in this. You know, I wrote this book because we're in this really exciting moment on some level where ancient wisdom is actually we're actual actually to really integrate that into the cutting edge. Of where of where modern thought is going, as to say, the modern world is starting to understand, like you know, this reductionist way of thinking is not the only way. We need to actually start looking at the whole, and so modern ecological science and system science is trying to is starting to to come around to that. And guess what? These ancient wisdom cultures, including Judaism, but not only Judaism are there all along. And so this is another resource. Like so we can start to actually integrate, integrate these religious insights and these ancient wins insights into our scientific insights. And that hasn't happened for centuries. You know, so to me it's a really exciting time where 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 we can actually become whole. And that's why, you know, that's really why I wrote the book, because I think for all our problems, it's also an amazing, amazing time of opportunity. So yeah, I hope people will. I hope people will buy the book, "The Pearl and the Flame," and uh, you know, and I'm and I'm happy to to talk to anybody who wants to to uh, ask a question or form a book group or bring me to your community. You can get in touch with me at at my email natanm one one eight at gmail dot com, and. Uh, I, I I really hope that this the, that the insights that I've tried to uh, try to express in the book are something that will resonate with 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 you the listeners and uh, and a lot of people around because I think that this is something that's important. Thank you so much, Natan. Uh, so we've been talking with Natan Margalit, author of The Pearl and the Flame: A Journey into Jewish Wisdom and Ecological Thinking. Until next time, may we all be blessed with conscious action, that finding that heartfelt way of moving forward and know that we're connected to the larger whole. And may we all take just one intentional step towards what we really believe in and help in our own way move forward and make our world a better whole, ecologically connected place.